Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. At the end of the service, we're going to sing Revive Us Again. And the reason I want to say that now is because the nature of the sermon and the text, really, uh, I want us to focus on that concept, revive us again, but uh, um, if you think about the ways in which we go into a funk spiritually, and we rise and fall and rise and fall in these cycles, and you think about the need that we have to continue to grow in our desire for not this world, but for the other, then you have an idea about uh, what I desire in this sermon, but what you should desire from God, that God would cause us all to to seek him and desire and to desire a heavenly kingdom. And it's difficult today because we're constantly harassed with every kind of uh, uh, external stimulus constantly. There isn't a time. Tomorrow we're going to have a day of prayer and fasting and you, maybe you'll fast food, maybe you'll fat, not fast food, Maybe you'll fast food. Maybe you'll fast your Twitter account. Uh, But if it's Twitter account, you have to do it for a month, just so you know. Uh, But to think about the realities of, of what we need spiritually and how we need desperately to know God and how, we, how easy it is to go through this life and just live it uh, on Twitter. That you can spend your life and, and the next thing you know, all you have is Twitter in your hands. And it just goes through your fingers and then you stand before God. Now, I'm just using that as an example, but you understand, we need to desire what is spiritual. And so we've been reading as a church in a Bible reading plan, and you've recently read our text in that plan, if you've been using that plan, from uh, Numbers chapter 11. I want to give you a little background about Numbers. Numbers is, it's kind of divided up. You can find outlines of it all over the internet. It's kind of divided up into three sections. Uh, the walking section, the wandering section, and the waiting section, okay? So I didn't come up with those W's, but they're nice, aren't they? So the walking section is at the beginning, and it includes our text in Numbers 11. It comes before the spies go into the land and God judges the people. And at that point, the wandering section happens, and it's 40 years, and it's a lot of chapters, and they're just going, 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 going. And then there you come to the end where it's the waiting section, and that's the closing down and Aaron dies, and Moses dies, and they're about to go into the promised land, right? And so things are closing down. All of the generation dies except for Joshua and Caleb, 
right? All the gener- that, that generation of discontents, okay? And some of those discontents are present in our text today. But I, I want to go back, we're gonna choose, a, the cha- text I've chosen is in the center, about the center of the chapter, and so I want to go through the chapter so you have the context of the text. Just quickly, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but I'm gonna just outline it quickly for you. So at the beginning you have uh, the people complaining, and God sends a judgment, and they're burned. There's a fire. And they come to Moses and they plead with him, intervene for us, stop the fire. Moses goes to God, he intervenes and stop the fire. And remember that these are the people, and I'll say this again later in the sermon, these are the people who went from Egypt where they saw the complete annihilation, devastation, destruction of the entire Egyptian economy where they saw the the death of the firstborn sons of the entire nation, where they walked out having plundered the Egyptians, carrying all their wealth with them, where they were followed by Pharaoh and his army, where they miraculously by God's power went through the Red Sea as though on dry ground. When they watched the, the Egyptians die in the Red Sea, destroyed by God and wiped away, where they had a pillar of fire and a cloud that attended them everywhere they went, where they had miraculous manna that came down out of heaven, settled on the ground like dew, that they went out and just picked it up, and it was just this miraculous food that was like, you know, the wonder food, like yams or something, you know. People say that some kinds of sweet potato have this uh, everything you need, you know, sweet potato, but it wasn't yams that they were picking up. These are the people who saw it who were complaining, and God sends a fire. Now I could say, well, they only got the fire because they had seen such wondrous things. I think that's true in part. But I don't want us to think, oh, okay, so we can rest because we didn't see this, all those things. Because God's justice and his judgments, we should always be afraid of being offensive to God. And they weren't. And, it's, and it's, what, it's doubly bizarre because right after the fire is quenched and Moses intervenes, then it says that a, a greedy rabble among them starts getting everybody incited to complain about the food, which was the manna. And so the greedy rabble and everybody's upset about the food. And they come to Moses and say, we want some meat. We're tired of this manna, we want meat. I mean, can we just have some meat? Could we have meat? And so Moses is frustrated and God is upset at the people. And Moses comes to God and he says, they want meat, what did you do giving me these people? And Moses says, well, or God says, well, we'll give them meat. And Moses says, I can't give them meat. Where am I gonna get all the meat to feed all these people? Why did you send me out here to do this? Why did you give me this job? Would you just please kill me? That's what he said. Would you just please kill me? I'd just love to die right now. And uh, some of us can kind of relate to the reality there, right? We get to that place. And I'm not gonna condemn Moses and say, well, that was sin and faithless and all those kinds of things. I wasn't there. I know that often if I'm feeling that way, it's sin, it's faithless. 
And Moses had seen a lot of things, and I got to tell you, he was just tired. I mean, he just intervened for them to stop the fire. And he probably was tired of going back to God and saying, okay, would you, would you not kill more people because of how wicked they were? And finally, at this point, he just, I think he's just saying, okay, just kill me so I don't have to watch this anymore, so I don't have to participate in this anymore. And God says, okay, this is what's going to happen. I, he answers Moses' question. This is the next section. He asks, answers Moses' question. He says, okay, I want you to go and I want you to talk to the people. I want you to tell them I'm going to give them meat. They want meat, they're going to get meat. They're going to get meat until it's coming out of their nostrils. That's how much meat they're going to get. And then he said, I want you to go. And then thinking of Moses and his weakness, he said, I want you to go and get 70 men. And I'm going to give them the spirit that I've given to you so that they can share the burden of the carrying of these people. And so then Moses in faith, and this is the beginning of the section we will be looking at, Moses in faith goes out and he does those two things. He tells the people they're gonna get meat and he gets the 70 and gathers them around the tent. And then God does the work with the 70. And then the next section, God brings, the meat to the people. And he, uh, he doesn't just get a little meat to the people. So to give you an idea, because we have, we have uh, uh, amounts of food that God has brought to the people. It says that the quail were brought in by a wind. I don't know if God just generated them out of nothing. That's fine with me. I don't know if he had and had pre-planned a huge quail population that was just in the right place for him to send the wind that he said he sent and, and brought the quail into the camp. But it says that they brought the, it, the wind brought the quail around the camp and that they were two cubits deep. Now, if you know what a cubit is, it's generally the measure from your elbow to the end of this finger. So two cubits deep is about a yard, about three feet deep of quail, right? You get in the picture. And it says that the one who gathered the least gathered 10 homers. Now, how much is a homer? Well, a homer is a lot. What's that? No, don't be saying that. How much is a homer? A homer is like uh, uh, the volume of 12 dozen eggs. Okay? So you get 12 dozen eggs and volume, you have a homer. And then he gathered 10, the one that gathered the least gathered 10, so he gathered the volume of approximately 1,440 eggs, right? He's got a big lot of, he's got 135 pounds. But you can't take quail and directly say the same volume is going to equal the same weight as a homer of eggs, right? But it was a lot of quail. And, and generally by volume, by weight, if quail weigh about three and a half or three and a quarter ounces a piece, they're not very big, average. He gathered about 650 quail. The guy that gathered the fewest gathered about 600. That's a lot of quail. That's a lot of quail. It's gonna take, a t- you're gonna build a cage, you gotta put them in a box, you gotta do something 
with all those quail that they had. They had a lot of quail. And then they started eating. And then it says, while the meat was still in their teeth, God judged them. And again, you have this situation of God just, and I don't know. We don't know who died of that um, plague. We don't know if it was the, the uh, greedy rabble that incited people. We, didn't, we don't know if it was them and a whole bunch of people. I think for sure the greedy rabble died, right? But you had this other plague that happened at the end of the chapter, okay? So that's going through the chapter, that's how it's happened. You see, just interspersed, you see the rebellion of the people, God's work, God's judgment is justice. You see Moses' uh, weakness, you see God's provision for Moses, you see God's provision to the people, you see the people's ungrateful rebellion, you see God's judging of the people again. All just, all in the chapter, right? And so our text from Numbers 11, starting at verse 22. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. So I look at this as kind of the pivot of the chapter. This is Moses doing exactly what God said he would do to set up what was going to happen. He told the people, meat is coming. And he went and gathered the 70 men and he gathered them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the, 70, or when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone down to the tent and they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I want us to think about this little, this little thing that happens in the middle of the chapter, this little pouring out of the Spirit on the 70 and them prophesying in the context that it's in. I'm fascinated by how the Lord directs the situation. While he's caring for Moses, he gives meat to the people, but he's not really giving meat to the people like in a way that uh, is benevolent. It's kind of like the little boy, the dad catches him smoking a cigarette, right? And he says, okay, you wanna smoke cigarettes? I'm gonna buy a whole carton and you're gonna smoke them all at once, right? You guys ever heard this? Any, Doug, you did this with your, okay. Carol did that. You made David smoke all those? Your mom made you? 
Well, it's a little bit like that, although, you know, that's an odious comparison. But the reality is God is going to give them something, and he says himself, they're going to have it until it runs out their nose. They're not going to be, they're not going to really enjoy it when he gets done, right? And so God gives that in the midst of all of, God gives this blessing of the Holy Spirit in the midst of that entire process that happens. And he directs the situation. He's extravagantly generous toward Moses through the provision of helpers. And the giving of the Holy Spirit is like a sneak preview to what he's going to do in the church age when he comes and he brings the Holy Spirit to pour out upon all his people, right? In the primitive church. And Moses' humility is revealed in it because what one of us if, this, if we were Moses in this situation, would have the response that Moses has to the young man coming into Joshua. You know, Joshua's, it says he's, he served Moses from his youth. You realize Joshua loves Moses and he honors him and he respects him and he doesn't want anything to come close to unseating Moses from Moses' particular special seat of, of recognition in his life or in anyone's life. It's a good thing for Joshua to be jealous for, but Moses just disabuses him of that whole idea and just immediately says, no, no, Joshua, are you jealous for me? No. And it's fascinating too, because here Moses, is a while, a while before this exchange happens, he's just saying to God, why don't you kill me? Just kill me. And how it's flipped, how, it's just, how everything has changed now. Because now Moses is, is his, his eye is clear. And the Holy Spirit has been given to these men, and Joshua comes to him with this, trying to restrain it. And Moses is saying, No, no, no. Would that all God's people were prophets? Would that they all would prophesy? Moses is humble. So, what did it mean that they prophesied? In the Bible, prophecy attends generally a personal, vital presence of God's Holy Spirit on an individual or a group of individuals. Sometimes this presence is continued through that person's life, and we would call a man like this, typically they would be called a prophet. That presence is attending them throughout their lives. Many of the books of the Old Testament chronically the lives of prophets, what they say. Some of them are written by prophets, right? And so we have knowledge of these prophets. But what was prophecy all about? Well, there were basically three different kinds of prophecy. One was the kind of prophecy that had to do with revealing what was going to come, and it was going to come regardless. It was going to come. I don't know how God orchestrates all this, because I'm not God but he's much bigger than we can imagine, and so our brains kind of trip when we think of the idea that he orchestrates history in such a way that the things he determines will happen will happen, while at the same time he calls upon men with another kind of prophecy. So the first prophecy is like things that he has determined that will happen will happen. And this is like him saying to Abram, your descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years. This was, these were Abram's descendants coming out of Egypt where they had been for 400 years 
And this was a fulfillment of a prophecy that God said had to happen until the wickedness of the Amorites was fulfilled. He knew about the Amorites, God knew about the wickedness of the Amorites, he knew it was gonna be 400 years before he was ready to pour out his wrath on them to his own glory. And he knew that Israel was going to go out and they were gonna be instrumental in that process. And it was going to happen. There wasn't a kind of, uh, of uh, uh, condition. They'll, they'll go in Egypt if, they'll come out of Egypt if, and if the Amorites, and if, no, that was all going to happen by God's plan. That's one kind of prophecy. There's lots of that in the Bible. There are places where it just says, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and it's not up for debate. It's just going to happen, right? There's another kind of prophecy in the Bible where men go and they speak to people messages from God, and they tell them that if you don't do X, this will happen. So Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he preaches to Nineveh. He goes to this huge city, and he's one man in this sprawling metropolis. So what does it say? It takes how many days to walk across it? It's huge. And Jonah goes to this sprawling metropolis, one man, he preaches, if you don't repent of your sins, God's going to destroy you. And the most amazing thing happens. Through the, through the speaking of that one man, God powerfully, by his Holy Spirit, causes the entire nation, from the king all the way down to the lowest person, to be put in sackcloth, repenting of their sin. And God does not destroy them. Okay? So that's another kind of prophecy. How God reconciles the ones that are determinative and absolute and that one, and how he does all of this is his incredible, incredibleness. <laughs> Okay, give me some more adjectives, I don't know. God does, he just does. Then there's a third kind of prophecy, and the third kind of prophecy is the kind of prophecy that involves ecstatic, perhaps eruptive, uninhibited utterances, exclaiming God's glories, his works, his beauties, his mercies, his judgments, and any of the others of his attributes. And this just happens, they just, his spirit comes on people and they just erupt with this ex, these exclamations. This is what happened in Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter two, the spirit is poured out and men start to speak in tongues. And you say, wait a minute, Pastor Max, that's tongues. We don't say that word in the Reformed church, that's tongues. And wait a minute, Pastor Max, even though we don't say that word in the Reformed Church, it says tongues, it doesn't say prophecy. So what are you talking about? Well, I don't want you to get wrapped around the axle about what men have debated for long years, whether there was a miracle in the ears or a miracle in the mouth or whether this or whether this or whether this. Just look at the text and see what it just absolutely says, absolutely obviously, okay? So here's something for you to notice, right? So the men say, in Acts 2.11, we hear them in our own languages speaking the mighty deeds of God. We hear them in our own tongues, languages, speaking the mighty deeds of God. Now, what is obvious? Let's not get wrapped around the charismatic axle. What's obvious? What's obvious is that they heard them 
in their own languages, speaking unintelligible gibberish. Is that what it says? They heard them speaking the mighty deeds of God. Was there any ambiguity about what was being said by these men on whom the Holy Spirit had come? No. It was completely unambiguous. And so, clear in your mind, why did they think they were drunk? Did they think they were drunk because they were speaking uh, uh, non-understandable gibberish? Is that why they thought they were drunk? No. Why did they think they were drunk? They thought they were drunk because they were uncharacteristically outside of themselves. Uncharacteristically given over to something that only drunk people would act like that. Only drunk people would stand up and just start exclaiming about the glories of God and his wonders. Because they'd be uninhibited. They would be outside of themselves, and only drunk people can be outside of themselves. No. No. Those who are overwhelmed by the presence of God in his Holy Spirit, you realize that if the Holy Spirit is in you, God is in you, and you are tasting of God from God himself. And so you have an experience of God that you couldn't generate in your own flesh. You can talk about the attributes, but when you would prophesy about the attributes, and if you're not yet convinced about that, uh, about this being, the prophecy being the influence and the reality of Acts 2, if that's not enough for you, then go on to what Peter immediately says. He stands up and he says, hey, these guys aren't drunk. This is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel, where it says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all men, and they will speak in tongues. But is that what it says? It doesn't say that. It says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all men and they will prophesy. They will speak the mighty deeds of God like men who are outside of themselves and are uninhibited by their own flesh and meager finitude. Right? And so that's what you have in Acts 2. And my argument to you this morning is that's exactly what you have in Leviticus 11. I'm sorry, Numbers. I always say Leviticus, I don't know why. That's exactly what you have in Numbers 11. You have God's people, those 70, and it's poured out on them, and everybody knows something amazing is happening. Something very different is going on. They know it at the tent. Those who are at the tent know it. Those who are seeing what's going on at the tent know it. But they don't just know it at the tent. They know it back in the camp. Do you know why? Because because he wanted it to be that way. God gave two of the men his Holy Spirit who didn't get, get to the tent. Why they didn't get there, we don't know. But they didn't get there. And so he poured out his spirit on them, and they prophesied, and all the people saw it. And they were speaking and giving glory to God, but after that, they didn't do it. So they had this moment of of ecstatic, God-moved 
praise, worship, that was so obvious and otherly that everybody recognized it as such, and then that was the last time they did it. These people had seen the miraculous uh, demolition of Egypt. They had seen the death of the firstborn son. They had walked out of the country despoiling the Egyptians of all of their goods. They had walked to the Red Sea and seen the water divided. They'd walked through the sea on dry ground. They got to the other side, they turn around and they watch as the sea covers the Egyptian army. They have a pillar of fire and a cloud that attends them all the while they go. They have, they have miraculous manna on the ground that feeds them constantly. And Moses says what God says is going to happen. They're going to get quail. And then they see as prophecy happens right before their eyes. God is glorious. God is marvelous. The men are outside of themselves prophesying. And then the quail come. It's just... It, it would be hard to imagine if it wasn't so much like us, right? <laughs> if we weren't so quickly fickle, it would be hard to imagine them being that quickly fickle. But they were, and we are. They were incited by the greedy rabble, and despite everything they had seen, what they said was, we want meat. We want to eat meat. We're carnivores, which incidentally is from the same root as carnal. We're fleshly. We want meat. We're fleshly. In the Greek, it's sarks. It's, it's the same thing, flesh. We're fleshly. We're, we're, we're meat. We're meat. We want meat. We want to live our lives and be all about meat whatever meat is to us, whatever that means to us. We don't want to be about spirit. We don't want to be about the Holy Spirit coming and revealing the work of God. We're meat. We want meat. And that's what they were. And it's, it's not that eating meat is a sin. No. Meat is okay to eat. It's good. It wasn't that they weren't meat eaters, generally. It's that in, in the presence of the spiritual that they were uh, basking in, even to the point that food was provided them in a miraculous way, never before, never again would it happen. Just then, just for them, in that place they couldn't do anything but complain about their circumstances. We want to go back to Egypt. That was better for us. Egypt was better. There were meat in the pots. It was better. It's not about the meat, per se. You could swear off meat today and never eat meat again and be the most carnal person. Okay? So understand that clearly. This whole chapter should remind us of Jesus in John chapter 6 because it's almost, it almost gets repeated 
exactly the same way. Jesus is preaching to the people. They follow him. He's got thousands of people standing there. He's concerned about them. They don't have anything to eat. So he provides miraculously, right? And, and he breaks the bread and provides miracle food. And so there, and then he gets in a boat and he goes, and the next day they follow him to where he is. And there they are again. And, and then they ask him this question. They say, uh, so when did you get here? But, but that's not really what they were asking. What they were asking was, and it's obvious from Jesus' response to them, so when's dinner? That's what they were asking. When's dinner? Because his immediate response was, you didn't follow me because of spiritual food, you followed me to eat bread. You just want more bread. You're fleshly, they're just like Israel in numbers. The same thing. You think it's about flesh. It's not about flesh. I have food to give you that's spiritual. And immediately, you know what they bring up? Well, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. <laughs> it's a fascinating thing. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Come on, make us some manna. But they still weren't getting it. It was about flesh. It wasn't about spirit. And so Jesus had to be more explicit with them. And so he says, okay, let me tell you how it is. I am the bread that comes down out of heaven. I am the true spiritual bread that comes down from the Father that feeds you. The one who feasts on this bread will never be hungry. But it's spiritual. You gotta eat my body and drink my blood. It's spiritual. And so they, ugh. We just wanted some more loaves and fishes. And you're giving us this, this is just yucky sounding. Because they didn't have spiritual eyes to see. They didn't have spiritual, so they left. And he turns to his disciples, he says, are you gonna leave also? And I think it was Peter who says, where would we go? To who would we go? You're the only one that has the words of life. You're the only one. It makes me think of uh, Martha and Mary. You guys ever read this, the, the account of Martha and Mary and, and you know Martha's busy in the kitchen loading the dishwasher and Mary's over here and listening to Jesus and Martha's upset. And so, don't you kind of sympathize with Martha? I think I always do. But it was fascinating reading this. I think it provoked me to, to get a good picture of uh, Martha's problem. Because she comes to Jesus, she says, Mary's not helping, she's not helping. And Jesus says, Martha, Mary has chosen the good thing. Nobody told you you had to do the dishes. Mary chose the good thing. And Mary is not restrained from listening to Jesus. The good thing was just listening to what Jesus had to say. That was the good thing that Mary got to do, right? And so Jesus is there with all these people in John 6, and he's talking to them spiritual things, and they're not hearing it, but Peter knew. He said, where would we go to get words of life? Where would we go? There's no place to go. Nowhere else brings them to us. The people wanted flesh to eat. 
No, in this case, they wanted bread, maybe fish, but it was carnal. It's not about the bread and it's not about the quail, it's about the carnal. Do you understand? It's not about what it is. It could be masks and your dependence and give me more masks, whatever that means, or your music or uh, your entertainment or your money or your Twitter account or whatever it is that is the thing that it's what you want to feed you. Feed me this thing. Give me this thing, because I think this is where life is. And God says, no, don't think about those things. I'll take care of those things for you. I've never let any of my people suffer for those things. Seek me, not those things. Seek me. I'll give you all that stuff. I'll make sure you've got food to eat, but seek me. Seek that which is spiritual. And so, it's fascinating, as I was preparing this, and I was looking at 1 Corinthians because it talks about the spiritual. And, and uh, so you have 1 Corinthians 11 where we, where we uh, have the words of institution for communion, right? I gave to you that which I received, that on the, and he took the bread, he broke it. We, we go through those every time we do communion, the words of institution, we read them. And it's appropriate that we do so. And so it's about eating Christ's body and drinking his blood, right? That's what it's about. But it's spiritual, right? That's what it is. And we're supposed to know it's spiritual. And right after he says this, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, he goes right into 1 Corinthians 12. And the first line he says in 1 Corinthians 12 is, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. And so you went right from the, the, the table of the body and blood of Christ and right into a thing where it says, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be unaware. But is that what it says? It doesn't say that. It says, concerning the spiritual brothers. Gifts is one of those italicized words. Now, I don't want to tell you that there's no connection to the spiritual gifts that will come later in the chapter. What I want you to understand is that it's broader than just the gifts and that it has to do with the spiritual. We don't want you to be unaware of what is spiritual. And so then he goes on and he talks about the gifts, but then he goes on and he talks more about just things spiritual. He gets to uh, chapter 14 Verse one, and he says, pursue love. Uh, This is after the love chapter. He says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. But it doesn't say that. Because the word gifts isn't there. So he says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual. (laughs) Now, I I don't want to make too much of it, but it is something to be made of. Okay? Because, yes, the gifts are spiritual. But there's a bigger category. In fact, later, I think, when he's talking about prophecy, he actually, he actually juxtaposes prophecy and spiritual by saying prophecy or spiritual. And he's contrasting, or he's setting them side by side as if they're separate things, right? 
And I want you to see this because the, the fact is, as Christians, we are supposed to be not about the carnal meat, but we're supposed to be about the spiritual, growing in the spiritual. And it was the sin and failure of Israel in Numbers 11 that they just wanted the flesh. And it was the failure of the people in John 6 that they wanted the bread or the flesh. They were carnal. How will we come to being alive if we don't seek and desire the spiritual? Why fast tomorrow? Do you follow me? Now this for old people, if you've been around a while and you're in Christ, you'll say, yep, Max, I know. Uh, there have been times in my life when I've sought the spiritual and there are times when I've, I've been fleshly and spiritual and fleshly and sometimes it's all in one day and on and on and on, and you know enough to know that, but it doesn't disqualify you or doesn't set you aside from the question of your desire to seek the spiritual or mine. And you young people, have you thought about the fact that God calls you to seek the spiritual, that he calls you to not live according to your flesh? And what that actually means. It doesn't mean that you become some ascetic and live in a cave or what in the world would be the equivalent today? I don't know. Goth? I don't know. I don't know what. What it means is that you desire the spiritual, trusting God that he'll take care of all the other stuff. Right? But you have to actually pursue what is spiritual and not, being, not pursuing your life and your fulfillment and, and your hedonistic endeavors. Because Jesus says, no, that's never going to satisfy you. In fact, in the end, all you'll get for that, you'll get it, it'll be in your hand, it'll fall through your fingers, and then hell. That's it. That's the end. But if you want life and life eternal, you seek Jesus Christ. Okay? And I think it would be a good deal of fun for us as a congregation to come alive. <laughs> How annoying would it be if, if we started having prophecy and you say, well, wait a minute. I'm a cessationist. And I say, good for you. <laughs> How annoying would it be if we started having prophecy where people would just, in the middle of worship, start exclaiming, erupting the glories of God. Not to destroy the, the context of the worship, but to just add to it. How interesting would it be if, if the people among us that were the most, you say, well, yeah, Pastor Max, you know, you got a big mouth and you like to talk and you love to just be eruptive and disruptive and whatever. But what about those people among us who just never, never generally, and you would, you, would, you would just go, what in the world just happened? 
because they would just say, oh, God is amazing. And everybody could hear them and you'd say, are you drunk? Do you desire this for yourself? Do you desire it for our church? Do you desire that vitality in your life that men would see that there is the presence of God in you? That there's the presence of God in our church? You know what the scripture says, it's, it's prophecy that, that makes people come to Christ. <laughs> That's what it says. It says you can have tongues in your assembly when nobody understands what you're saying and nobody's gonna to come to Christ, but if you prophesy, they're gonna hear you, they're gonna understand, and they're gonna say, wow, what kind of God is this? It's evangelistic. And it wouldn't be just evangelistic to those people out there, it'd be evangelistic to us people in here. To us, to our children, to our grandchildren. Do you desire the spiritual? When we sing Revive Us Again, you know, the song is kind of dun, dun, dun. I almost want to just read it. I don't know, Jody, because it's like, it's such a, I don't know. Do you know what I'm talking about with the melody? I don't know. Maybe because I've had it so often. But the fact of the matter is, the words, revive us again. Send your spirit. Make us alive. Give us life. Pray it. When we sing it, you pray it. And ask God that he'll uh, deliver you from your fleshly desire. The, the bag of meat you are. And he will get you to see eternal life and spiritual vitality in Christ. Make that your prayer. Say, say God, give me Jesus Give me your Holy Spirit, make me alive. I want to be alive, I don't want to be about this world. This world's going away, it's going fast. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that you are so patient with us. You have been patient with your people through all time. You know that we are made of dust and that uh, we are prone to wander and to sin. Lord, turn us away from our sins. Cause us to seek that which is life and spirit. By your power and by your wonderful hand, please. Give us your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.